This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Blank Podcast, the podcast where we delve into those difficult moments with some well-known guests. I'm Giles Paley-Phillips, and I'm munching on some peanuts. How are they? I'm here. They're, well, they, they're really nice, actually, Jim. They're like honey-roasted ones. Oh, but yeah, they're, they're the best kind. Them and dry-roasted they're like, are probably the best ones. Yeah. Yeah, these are not dry-roasted. They're the honey-roasted. Oh, lovely. They sound fantastic. So they've got sort of sweet, salty kind of coating on them. <laughs> And they're delicious. So why does this feel like an um, M&S advert my... now? <laughs> they're, they're, they're really nice. Anyway, <coughs> they also make it <laughs> And now he's choking on them. This is a, this is a, this is a really... Le- oh, the first live death of podcast. <laughs> it's a, not where you expect the podcast to go. Um, anyway, I'm here with Jim Daly. Jim Daly, how are you? Hello, I'm good. I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's like I'm nutless, but that out of context sounds very weird. I um, am good, though. I'm not eating any... Uh, honey coated or dry roasted or salted peanuts um but i am feeling good uh and i'm doing okay yeah how are you yeah very well thank you yeah good um kids about to go back to school yes obviously we're recording this um just as children are going back to school but obviously this won't come out for a little while but yeah so i think sort of seeing a little bit of normality i guess um obviously the children have got those Normal anxieties about going back to school after yeah. summer holidays anyway. And obviously it's been an extended sort of summer holidays. So, yeah, so there's all that kind of stuff in play. But, yeah, we're good. The family's well. And um, the sun's out today, which is always nice. Yes, it's been a bit weird recently, hasn't it? It's been a bit been a bit overcast and rainy, but it's nice and the sun comes out. You're right about sort of getting back to normal. I, I played my first game of football this week uh, since, since probably last year, actually. I don't think I even played to start of the year. Um I got an hour at right back. What was the score? We drew four all. Four. Yeah, I played for. A, that is an epic. I, I think I, I played for a vets team, which it was obviously people that are over thirty-five, not people that work with animals. Just in case anyone's uh, not sure. Well, I was going to say more. No, I was going to say like army veterans. Similar thing. So like a veteran. So it's basically football for the over thirty-five. And I joined Lay Hill right. Vets. They're called and um, really nice bunch of lads. Played my first game midweek. We played against another vets team at Tring Athletics Ground, which had just been cut. So it was like pre-season. Really nice pitch. Matt, so proper grass pitch. Proper like non-league pitch massive pitch it was huge and i was playing right back well, i came on after about Whoa. 15 20 minutes and then played the rest of the game at right back and um or oh, i hard work right i've back. been um 
hobbling around the house for the last two days. Honestly, yeah. my legs are taking a battering. But we did. We drew four all. We did okay. We, we were four three up with about thirty seconds to go and letting the last minute equalise. It wasn't my fault. Oh. Just to were you playing a bit of sort of a ring? ring kind of. It was, it was four at the back, but um, were, I I do like to get four. Doing overlaps. I did a few overlaps. I mean, literally one or two because I don't have the legs for that anymore. Yeah, but, you um, need to have a bit of pace. Don't yeah, you? but I'm not saying that you're not pacey, but I'm just saying. I mean, I'm you know. thirty six, so I'm not going to be that. Pacey. I never yeah. was really, to be fair, but um, I did a couple of few overlapping runs and got the forward to sort of play me in behind the fullback. And um, I can see you as a sort of Joel Ward. <laughs> got, got the same haircut as him, really, haven't I? So, yeah. Um, if anyone doesn't know who Joel Ward is, he plays for Crystal Palace, probably one of the greatest teams. He's ever. a bit of a Palace legend, actually. He's, uh, yeah. he's a very, very nice guy. Um, so, and he thinks I'm hilarious. So, obviously, legend. Um, yeah. So that was. It was good to be out there. Good to play again. Felt amazing to play. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm feels like things have returned to normal here. I still got the anxieties. I have slight anxieties about being with other people and stuff, you know. Yeah, of but, course. Um, In contact sport, and contact all that. sport. Although, again, the pitch was so big, there was no one near me, which was great. But, um, <laughs> no, it was good, and it, is, it does feel nice to be getting back to a bit of normality. Mm. But um, and in fact, actually, that that's actually quite a good thing because that comes up today actually on the pod um, with our guest, Professor Kate Williams, talking about. Um, looking back historically at kind of these kind of things mm. and, and, you know, studying it actually and talking about well, the learning from our yeah. mistakes, which we don't seem to do as a society. Well, as a global community, we don't tend to seem to do that. We kind of, and maybe we could say that history often does repeat, doesn't it? And, or, you know, we see what, you know, it, and I'm talking about like, going as far as back to saying like you know music and the, you know the arts and like fashion and all those things kind of come back around don't they sort of everything's kind of repeating a little bit and I, and I think like politically and in societal kind of ways we there is that repeat there, yeah, there is absolutely and, and we, we sort of bounce around on this pod don't we because at times we feel like we've learned nothing and we're just doomed to repeat ourselves forevermore and then at other times Kate is quite positive actually about the movements that are mm. happening at the moment so it's um it's a really fascinating podcast and I've learned a lot from the last hour and 10 minutes and oh, so an good. absolute load uh, and I think you know spending time in Kate's company is, is is incredibly fascinating and you will come away from uh being with her more knowledgeable <laughs> you just will because she's, yeah. she's she's like a well of information it's fascinating yeah, I don't know about you, Jim, but I think I, I think history didn't necessarily interest me particularly when I was at school. Yeah, but you alluded to it actually on the pod that yeah. um, you know history is something that's all around us. I mean, like you know, if you're into like you said football or video games or books or you know any kind of arts and stuff, you you're going to look back at what people have done before. So there is a history in all those things. But I think I'm one of those people that around the age of 30 or 35, mm. I got really interested in history and particularly things like, like the Second World War I became very sort of ravenous for like movies and books and watching documentaries um, about that kind of period of history. So yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, and and also some of the stuff that um, Kate is really into, which is sort of raw history mm. and like particularly going back to sort of Tudor times and stuff. I think, and we've seen like a, a sort of renaissance in the love of that stuff. You know, with things like Wolf Hall, you know, the whole Hilary Mantel kind of trilogy. There's a there's a real again, there's this sort of vivacious mm. 
desire for this kind of stuff. We should almost... We never kind of lose that. We should... It's almost like history. I mean, it was interesting that Kate saying that at the moment, a lot of schools and young people seem to be really interested in history, which is great. I'm like, yeah, I wasn't really into it as a kid. And it might have just been down to maybe not having the right sort of teachers. But it's almost like maybe when we get to 30, everyone in this country should then do history again. Because I think people would be yeah. way more engaged in doing it and find it more interesting. And especially having lived a bit of a life then, I think you then do appreciate how important history is. And as you say, it is everywhere, in every subject, really, anywhere. Yeah, and again, something that Kate talked a lot about, the fact that we 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 pick and choose sometimes with history, yeah. the things that we want. Um, and, you know, sometimes it doesn't... We, we, we find bits of history that kind of are in keeping with our mindset and our outlook on life and actually we need to sort of and it's just like a thing that comes up a lot you know the, the fact that these things aren't black and white there is hmm. a nuance there and actually we do need to look a bit more deeply sometimes particularly when it comes to difficult subjects um, to do with our you know particularly to do with our society absolutely and again something that's very very apparent at the moment i think um i think we've teased the listeners enough shall we go into um this week's episode uh on the blank podcast with the brilliant professor kate williams a few times over lockdown because you've been writing a book how, how have you found that has it been a good period for you as in giving you that time to knuckle down on it um that's a good question not so much not so much i don't you know there's so many other things going on so i ended up doing quite a lot of work on it at sort of midnight to 4 a.m which was in time when everything seemed to be quiet but that's through the whole of lockdown all over the place so so and anyway i'm, I'm better at working outside i'm much better at working out in libraries than i am working at home I find home full of distractions so so uh no so I think I think that I've seen quite a lot of people saying oh dear I haven't got much done you know because obviously we went into lockdown in March and now we're out so uh but uh yes I I I think you know I was quite surprised I was actually I saw people at the beginning of lockdown saying oh maybe I'll get my book written I didn't think this is quite the point of going what we're suffering in a global pandemic but um but I think it I think it was kind of the and, and this maybe maybe well yeah I think well, well, uh, um, I, I, I wonder how much writing there has been going on in lockdown I was thinking how much the diary of an ordinary person during lockdown that will be gold dust for historians in the future that will be absolute gold dust and I wonder mm. who's keeping it because I think lots of people would think that what they were doing was not necessarily interesting you know they might say my day was looking at a spreadsheet all day for homeworking, supervising my child, doing fractions for homeschool. Then we Zoomed with my parents who are shielding and I can't see them. And lots of people, that's what their life was. And I wonder whether anyone's kept a diary of that because I just think in a hundred years' time, that would be such gold, as you know, as historians. What we really want is the diary of the ordinary person, how the ordinary person lived in London in the 18th century. And so I really hope that even though perhaps some of us who are actually writing books maybe didn't get on too well in lockdown, that some people have found lockdown very inspiring to write diaries. Um, you know, I, I'd be amazing if some health workers or key workers had found a few moments in the super stressed nightmare time to write a few words. And if ordinary people had it done, I think that these will be such important documents. So I hope that I hope that uh, 
people, I mean, I think, I think that, that, that everyone was saying, oh, there's going to be these pandemic novels, and maybe there will be, but I really hope that people have kept their diaries and in, you know, yeah. 50 years' time. Because I, I think that's the interesting about a diary, you know, we, lots of people don't keep them because they think, oh, well, it's not interesting what I'm doing all day. And, but in fact, hundreds of thousands of people across the world are trying to do work at the computer, then supervise their children, then speaking to people who are shielding. And yet, um, and yet, when for 200 years down the line, you know, that, that will be kind of incredible and fascinating, these minor details of how everything works and the online delivery works. So I hope that... I hope is it something you consider? Is it something you consider doing yourself? Like, had you thought maybe I should? Yeah, well, it'd be too late now. We'd be... have to go back and film in every day and try and remember what we did. I know, yeah, yeah. yeah try and remember each day of what we what we did. And the, you know, I mean, one of the earliest diaries is um, by um, an Egyptian civil servant called Mera, who was um, supervising the making of uh, the Great Pyramid, and his job was to make sure that the um, uh, the quarried blocks from the quarry came down the Nile and down various canals and were used to make the pyramid. And that, I think many people might have at the time sort of well, thought, well, we know how that works. But yet to us, that's the most fascinating. How fascinating is that? How they actually did it. So, so I think even though lots of us might think that their day of, our day of sitting, looking at an Excel spreadsheet all day and struggling with the, 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 what, what the child's doing at home school would not be interesting. I think it would be, so interesting and so fascinating and and so i hope that hope that it's been kept but yeah I, you know you, you know as a historian you get so many diaries of people who are already influential in society what you what the goal is that you want is one of people who are not have, have more ordinary lives the the everyday the, the voters the people the people who live every day as opposed to sort of you know the politicians of which we'll have i mean i'm sure we'll have a million politicians covid diaries to treat us to their fascinating thoughts you know yeah well i was going to say you know there's that age age old thing of of history being written by the victors and actually you know in i mean it's interesting you saying about that i had no idea about that um that diary by the by the egyptian like was he a slave he was was a civil servant but his overall so his overall job was to oversee it so he reported to the half brother of the pharaoh so so he he, you know he was overseeing the the movement of it and and uh, and you know questions that I'm sure his fellow civil servants thought were really routine, like how many blocks went on a boat and how big the blocks were. You know, we now find that beyond fascinating. But of course, I'm sure that, uh, and and obviously when you're involved in something, building something as important as the Great Pyramid, you know, I think that you, you, you might, you might feel that it's it's something to write about. So, so that's why I think it's, you know, and we see, we often see, you know, a lot of diaries around, the, like the Great War, because people swept up in the Great War. It's, 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 mm. it, and, and so, so, so there's, you know, as a historian, you're looking for the for the for the voice of the non-upper classes in the 18th and 19th century, and it, it, it is it, it's quite hard to find it not mediated by someone else who goes out there like asking mm. people questions, and they mediate it and they frame it. But the uh, but when in in the, in the First World War, you really do see a real surge of voices and it's because of people obviously there's a surge in literacy but also people think this i've got to write down what i'm experiencing in this in this in this cataclysmic time and um i wonder whether that's going to be the same now and i mean obviously i think the most famous diary we have is that of anne frank who who, diary of a young girl and and 
and what she was experiencing, that the horrors and that she went through was were, were in, it, in it, you know, and and what they're so fascinating because she was a, a child from the from the from the middle classes who who everything changed for and you know why why her the suffering that she depicted i think is so much more powerful than hearing it from someone who that's um from that's what that's the power that it has so 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 i so i think that you know it's interesting you know you know what everyone wants is the diary of a some what everyone wants is the diary of us of someone saying an enslaved person in london and a, a servant and that's what everyone wants because because as opposed to being written by someone else so um and we all everyone hopes we stumble across them but but uh so i, I hope that for posterity people people who are, who are living lives so we, i mean i'm sure we'll have a million diaries written by boris johnson and matt hancock about what they think about justifying everything that they did and all the, you know, the protective being around care homes and everything that they did to be, mm. the, you know, the endless failures of the government I'm sure we'll have lots of them justifying their endless failures um, but what, how, what we'll have from the ordinary people and obviously you know you have a, on Twitter you have a lot of much more thoughts, you have all these thoughts but is it how different are they mm. to a diary because we don't put on Twitter ordinary, often we don't put you know, what did I do today? I got up, fed the cat, tried to think, you know, took some deliveries to my neighbour. So, uh, and so that, that's what I, uh, well, I hope they are. Maybe I should put out a, a, a tweet saying, uh, uh, a bit late now, I should have done it at the beginning, shouldn't I? <laughs> I was I was going to say that actually uh, that is social media in a way almost like sort of modern or current uh, diary keeping. I actually, when I was doing my taxis a couple of years ago, there was a few like, weeks in my spreadsheet that i didn't know where i was and i had to actually go through my twitter account and see if i was tweeting about any gigs i did or anything like that so weirdly it became a sort of diary keeping thing but you're right people don't necessarily talk about the mundane bits of their day they talk they try and make it interesting or make it funny but on other platforms i guess like instagram people do stories of their day and youtube people a vlog about a lot of their their days and stuff sometimes some really big youtubers so Will historians in in the future look back and maybe use YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and those platforms as a way of sort of like a modern diary keeping? I think they will. I think I think they definitely will. I think they will be forms of diary, and there will be different forms of diary because they're automatically for public consumption. They're not a private diary that you kept privately for your own interest, or perhaps you kept privately thinking maybe maybe later it might be of interest. Um, you know, and uh, so so. So there, are, you know, there are automatically ways in which you you style yourselves, and not you know, yeah. lots of people don't always share their most private thoughts on Instagram or Twitter, or um, because mm. and, and and you know, things can be deleted. So, but I, I think they will. I think we will because we. I mean, you know, you're quite right. As a as a world, we're right. We're writing a lot. People are writing a lot. They're writing every day. They're writing on Twitter. They're writing on Instagram. They're writing on Facebook. They're writing on all kinds of social media sites. They're writing on WhatsApp. Um, yeah. These, but these, these, these as opposed to sitting down and writing an entry every day, um, and and the, and, but um, but obviously again, you know, you have the question of how how many how many people do we hear from on Instagram and Twitter? I mean, I think it's thirty percent of the population is it who's on Twitter, and how many of those are key workers and nurses and bus drivers and yeah. um, and rubbish collectors? How, how many people who? Who, how many people who, who who in the future people will really want to know 
what it was like being at, collecting the bins during the pandemic and mm. are they recording their their thoughts and uh, and, and that, that as opposed to you know being, there's lots obviously lots of journalists and lots of commentators and lots of and lots of thinkers and and you know it, so I'm, I'm still wondering whether what 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 we are uh, as a as a source for future historians, I and mean, obviously I won't know because I'll be long gone by then unless I can freeze myself. But how we how we are as a as a there's almost like more words than there were. I mean, lots of diaries never survived and yeah. were thrown away, and were, many diaries were vandalised because the families thought they were too shocking. I mean, that's edited and really? things were cut. Um, so we know, and, and, and many and voices were always lost, particularly voices of the excluded, of the marginalised, people of colour, of the working classes. But how, whether what we, whether we have is how, how different what we have and how, how what we, how good we are as sources. I'm, 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 I'm yet to, yet. I, I wonder what, um, I wonder, wonder what they will be. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating to think there's all this lost history. Um, that we, we we will never be able to tap into. And, and I think that's quite um, it's quite it's quite, yeah. it's quite upsetting. I think that's actually. one of the most powerful um, fictions in our society about discovering that lost history. You know, right from Indiana Jones to A.S. Byatt's collection, discovering yeah. that document, discovering that lost history. And we, you know, we often talk about discovering unknown documents and un- unknown history uh, in films when they, when they they already were they were in an archive. They were just. They were catalogued, and so. But I think that's why it's such a powerful fiction—the idea of going to a library and discovering an undiscovered document, or, or digging something and finding a completely, you know, an object that transforms our view of, of a Bronze Age culture. So, because because that idea is so thrilling, I think. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that, haven't we, in recent years, like things like the Da Vinci Code, and have become hugely commercial, like you say, in Indiana Jones. That that yeah, that idea of finding that lost treasure, which is you know so. Well, oh, it's quite tantalising, isn't it? I think we are. We are. We all, I think, on different levels, have a fascination of history and historical events. Like I remember not being particularly into history at school, but everything that I'm into, be it from football to comedy, whatever, nearly all of it involves a historical aspect at some point. And I think maybe, do you think, as people, we underestimate how much actually we are interested in history and how much it actually does matter to us and how important it is to us as a kind of species and i don't know i just i think i certainly underestimate it i wonder if you think other people maybe do as well uh underestimate history it's difficult because i see so much love for it i see so much enthusiasm for history so many people seem fascinated by it so many schools and i go to the schools are really fascinated by it you know i had i had i had last year i had a Person from the, the an encounter. A person from a pop star came up to me and said, oh, "I've seen you um, talking about Versailles on TV," and um, and I just tweeted about it. I thought it would amuse my followers, you know, because I didn't initially recognise him. And then and um, and and there were a little bit of people saying, "Oh, that wouldn't happen. you know that didn't happen." Crowd saying it didn't happen, and I just said, "It's really amazing for you to think that." someone who is successful in the pop world not, might not be interested in history. And I had all these people agreeing with me saying, oh, but, you know, I know that there are loads of people who love history, you know, pop stars and all kinds of people who love history. So I think there's a lot of enthusiasm for history in this country. And I think, you know, I think we're in a history revolution. I think we really are. I think, you know, we are in an absolute revolution of history with everything that's happened this year, with everything that's happened in terms of the, the marginalised voices, the black voices being brought, you know, mm. that the idea was that you know, some people didn't, uh, hadn't got a clue that 
that people were here have been here for so long in the Roman times and in, in powerful during the Tudor times and the 18th century and, and, and all these new questions we've got about history and what is history that when they call, I mean, I'm, I teach that Colson statue at the university and I teach it so many years and we talk about, every year we talk about the Colson statue and how people try to contextualise it, how people try to put a plaque on it saying he was a slave trader, how they were constantly blocked. So when he came down, when the statue came down, it, it blew my mind. I'd seen so many attempts to get it down through democratic processes and I was really overwhelmed and people were saying, oh, well, this should, should have come down by democratic means. And I, because I've done so much research on it for the students, I just said, no, you know, they, they tried, they tried everything to get this statue down by democratic means. They really did. And, you know, sometimes they, they, they would be constantly blocked. So if you can't, people wouldn't even let them put a plaque on him saying he was a, he was, you know, he, he traded and in, in trafficked and in, in misery and horror. So, I, and, and I think that Many people outside Bristol had, had didn't know who Colston was. They didn't know who Colston was, and yet, and they didn't know the extent of his trade. And then we, you know, obviously comes down, and then we have the people saying that this is history, and we can't pull them down, and we're whitewashing history. Whereas obviously, it's completely the opposite. You know, statues aren't about history. They're not a mountain or a cliff, and they're not Stonehenge. They're they're, they're what people were told to venerate. And, and in 1895, and then long after Colston was dead, uh, the statue was put up in Bristol to really uh, to teach people to venerate Colston. I mean, there were plenty of other, plenty of other, uh, if they wanted to, if they wanted a white man philanthropist in Bristol, there were plenty of others. There was a Quaker ironmonger who gave money to the abolition of slavery. There were plenty of other people who weren't slave traders they could have venerated, but they chose him. And so much of it was about the end of the British Empire and also about uh, there'd been a lot of working class revolt in Bristol. People had been asking for more workers' rights. And I, one reason I think it was you know, that this is how we're going to quell people asking for workers' rights. We're going to put up a statue and say, well, look, you know, you have, you have white supremacy, you have white superiority, even if you're, you know, you're, you're constantly exploited. So that's why Colston was created. So, so it wasn't to commemorate his philanthropy, which by the 19th century was, you know, tiny and it was not only tiny his philanthropy but also conditional you had to uh, agree with his political views and you to, to get any money from him and it was a very much a moralistic philanthropy and you know obviously we know that some of our some, some greatest criminals worst criminals in history have used philanthropy to cover themselves up from Jimmy Savile to Jeff Epstein yeah. you know yeah. we can't have it you know it's like as if you know as if uh, you know, Fred West suddenly gave money to a donkey sanctuary, it would make it all fine yeah. if the horrific yeah. of the yeah. he yeah. engaged in. So, uh, so, so you know, and so Colston, I think, really stimulated this question about what is history and what is our history, and he is not history. What what is history is the the people that he enslaved, the people yeah. that suffered, the people that yeah. that. That, that, that lived in it, it suffered genocide as a consequence of his actions, and that's what we should be commemorating, not and uh, not not raising him into the status because statues do they kind of raise someone into the status of of a god, and 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 so I think this current conversation we're having about what our statues stimulated by pulling down Colston, I think, is so important. We're saying, you know, not just you know. You know, we, we, I think people are really becoming aware what history is. It's not just events; it's the interpretation mm. of those events. And for so long, the, the events have been interpreted by a certain class of people, and experiences mm. have been excluded, particularly uh, those experiences those of colour, but also women, the working classes, LGBTQI. And now, people are you know, and the reason and the history was written in a certain way, not just by, I think definitely by the victors, but also going on top of that 
the victor's kind of telling telling the us what to think and how to see um britain and the world and this is changing and we're we you know empire that britain's involvement in slavery we are i think in a revolutionary coming to terms with it and and i and it's a this year i think has been terrible 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 the pandemic um politics are horrific deaths but one great positive i take from this is the is the is the great is this great change and it was obviously it's it's obviously heartbreaking it had to be stimulated by by the horrific mm. death of george floyd that 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 it's, yeah. it's horrific that it didn't that, that that's that, but but we are i think now i think now suddenly we we, we and we will i think we will we will continue to see more radical change i think and i think that I think, you know, Colston, I think, was just the beginning. Okay, everything you just said in the last five, ten minutes might be the most interesting thing I've ever heard on this podcast. If you if you were my history teacher at school, I'd have way enjoyed history more yes. than I did. That was really, really interesting. And I didn't know a lot of that stuff about Colston either, but that was genuinely really interesting. And, and I think you are right. We are in a bit of a seminal shift, I think, in the way people are thinking about these things. And, and I hope it does lead to... I guess more change and, and uh, uh, better times ahead. I guess. I, think, I don't know if that's being right. a bit optimistic. I, I think absolutely, and I think obviously, you know, one big thing we have to recognise is that slavery is not black history; it's, it's white history. I mean, mm. this is it absolutely. wasn't black people who enslaved themselves; it was white people who did it. And where does the money come from? Where does you know where where does the money that built so many cities come from? You know, and and it matters now. You know, we are. I think the sixth richest country in the world and we don't really have many minerals and we're a very small country and a lot of that is due to the basis of wealth that was created through exploiting um, other countries their natural resources through the empire oppressive regimes and trade and um, exploiting and and enslaving people uh, enabling genocide and I think you know because we didn't have plantations in this country I think lots of people don't were quite because it actually wasn't here people think oh well you know Britain wasn't really involved in it and yet it, it was mm. it, it it was Britain and slavery were intertwined for so long. So, but so so, so as a public historian, um, you know this, which is my job. This um, this this year has has just been has just been fascinating, and and I think so long overdue. Yeah, I mean that 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 last point you made and you alluded to the fact that we don't always I think as uh, the UK doesn't see themselves as being the bad guys and this is like well that kind of happened in America and you know but obviously we are steeped in that as well. I mean we were you know so steeped in it and I think that's something that we need to acknowledge more as a society. Yes, yes sure. I think so. I think and I think so and I think it, I think that there was a very interesting survey done last year by the uh, some trade representatives in the House of Lords and they said that you know, it's quite it's going to be increasingly difficult for the UK to be respected as a trade partner in Africa because Lower Africa was didn't really you know the country they 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 they, they sort of interviewed lots of different countries in Africa and so they thought what would you think about the UK as a trade partner and many countries said well there are there are difficulties and one of them was I think the lack one of them was they created the lack of our lack of our lack of our acknowledgement of empire and slavery and yeah. and so you know mm. these aren't just history culture wars these are really important in terms of um in terms of our global perception and and how 
people of color are treated here from from from, from enslavement, but also right through to the Windrush generation and the recent scandals we've had over Windrush that these people who arrived uh, were asked to come to help rebuild the NHS. Do rebuild the NHS put so much in uh, to the country in in cultural, in financial terms, in, in everything, and then suddenly they're being deported. Um, because of that. And, and, you know, and I mean, Windrush is such a scandal to me in every way. I mean, the main scandal is about the people and how they were be, being deported and, and they had to pay for cancer treatment. It's just horrendous. But also, as an as a historian, that archive, that archive of, of landing cards and the Windrush people, that amazing archive. Mm. I mean, that would have been generally just so many PhDs, so many brilliant PhDs on black British culture, and it would have been so great, and yet it was just thrown in the shredder and thrown away. And any archive would have been thrilled to have it, um, yeah. to, 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 to look after it. And it's just it's just heartbreaking that, that as a historian, that, that huge part of black British history, as I said, the, folk, the most important thing is, is the suffering of the people, but the, as a historian, the, the, just the, the lack of care for that archive, just chuck it in the bin. I really, you know, it really showed that there was uh, um, such a such a dismissive attitudes towards black British history. Mm. Uh, and, you know, they never do that with an archive about white, white life. And, no. and it's so, 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 uh, you know, so, 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 you know, so, so, I mean, obviously Windrush being, being the most recent scandal. Yeah. I think that was absolutely disgraceful. And I think there's a, there's, the question that hangs over a lot of people is, 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 is Britain a racist country? And well, I think, unfortunately, when things like that are happening, I think it is actually difficult to argue against that. Um, but I'm wondering about blank moments in history, because obviously, you know, using that as an example, I'm sure there are many other sort of blank moments where important parts of history are just not there. How, as a historian, do you deal with that? I guess... As in the sources the, aren't there. Yeah, they're just not there, or, or, or you're looking in a part of history and there are literally, you know, blank moments. Does that emotionally, how do you deal with that? Is that frustrating? And then I guess sort of more practically, how do you deal with that? Because it, be, it must be really frustrating. I think, I, think it, I mean, it is always frustrating when you're writing a biography or writing a book and the sources just aren't there. And I think the biggest temptation is to imagine, is to mm-hmm. imagine that it, it, you can you think, well, I know the source so well, I know, I know what they would have said, so, so I'm just going to write it. And that's what you have to resist because we don't know. It could have been anything. It could have been different. And we can't. It's not. It's not like um, you know. If you were one missing number of a budget sheet, you can say, "Well, roughly it was about that." But you you, you can't. I mean, um, that simply can't can't be the case. So so the blank spots in history, I think you have to note them. You have to say we. We don't know. And often people want definitive answers. They want, yeah. did so and so have an affair? Or did they go there? Or did they think this? And often if you don't tell us, you know, with diaries, with letters, or someone else, we, we don't know. So, so I think history is always dealing in the blank spots because not only are there sources missing, not only are the sources that are excised and are taken, and also people hide. I mean, people, people deceive, they hide, they... Um, they mask, they they veil what's really going on. So so, I I think that you you're not a, you you have to acknowledge that the ultimate truth, the ultimate answer, isn't there. And and you, whatever thing you will think about is partial. I mean, this is I you know I've worked on very quite very sort of areas that have a lot of scholarship on them. You know, for example, my first book was on Emma Hamilton, um, and a lot of Nelson scholarship, and yet 
lots of people are using the same sources but different interpretations. So lots of different, way different interpretations. Although it's, so it's very interesting that the avalanche of different interpretations that you have and all about Nelson or about Emma Hamilton. There are many people when I came to write her, but just thought she would call that a siren and flimsy. And, you know, Nelson never won. He just distracted Nelson. She brought him down. And, you know, he just imagines her as a kind of Lady Macbeth figure. So when you actually look, but you actually look at their relationship with the sources, you can see that, you know, she gave him so much and he gave her so much. And it was a very, it was, it was the relationship for him, not, so, so that it kind of dream that some of the scholars had that he just basically, they wish he just, dropped Emma from his history and gone back to his wife, you know, and so, and that, 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 that what things were revolved about Emma, her working class background, her background in London nightlife, that was, that, that way in which she pulled herself up really by her bootstraps was what Nelson really valued. So, so there were so many different interpretations, although it's very funny when you do a very, when you work on a very um, written on area, how some people agree on everything. So in Nelson scholars, in Nelson scholarship, everyone disagrees on so many questions. But one thing they all agree on is that Nelson's brother was a bit of a baddie. They can't find a positive thing to say about him because <laughs> maybe Nelson's brother just surfed off Nelson's uh, celebrity. And uh, when Nelson died, he, ex he expected his brother to look after Emma. And the, the state gave so much money to Nelson's brother as his male heir. And of course, Nelson's brother... Um, enjoyed George himself. He, he when Emma when Emma had been alive, he sent, he sent his daughter there. He's he got lots of money from Emma. So as soon as Nelson died, Nelson's brother just takes all the money. So even the everyone disagrees that everyone agrees that Nelson's brother was a bit of a wrong and just like in Queen Victoria's studies, that there were so many different views on Queen Victoria and yet John Conroy, the the man who really weaseled weaseled his way into a dependence, got the got the Duchess of Kent, Victoria's mother dependent on him <coughs> and became controlled Victoria's life. All these different views on Victoria, even though some say that she had a, you know, that, that she was, uh, uh, she, had, she said she had a happy childhood, but she didn't. I, I don't agree. I think she did have a happy childhood. But still, everyone kind of agrees that John Conroy is not, a, is a baddie. And I just hope, one day I'm wondering whether someone can write a biography either, you know, uh, supporting Nelson's brother or supporting John Conroy. And that, the revisionist, but um, so I do think that I do think that being a historian is dealing in the blanks. It's completely dealing in the blanks. It's dealing in not just what's not there in the, in the sources, but also what's not there in the source themselves. What words are what what's not being said? What 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 what's being disguised? What isn't there? I mean, you think about you know in the King in the French Revolution that he just wrote on the day of the French Revolution. He just wrote Rien in his diary about hunting. I mean, you think that the diary would tell you so much, but then in that case. It doesn't. Uh, it just didn't, didn't catch anything out on a hunting field. So, I think I think dealing in the blanks is um, is a job as a historian. And I think, anything to a degree, you know, dealing in the blanks is our is our life as people, isn't it? If we, you know, if you believe, if you, you know, the the, 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 the idea that you know, the, 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 if you that that, uh, that is such, I think, so key to notions of language that. If there was this prelapsarian state in the Garden of Eden, we understood everything, and language was understandable. And then we fell from the Garden of Eden, and now it's always partial. And language is a collection of signifiers, and no word is truth; it's just signifiers. Um, that I think is our lives as humans. You know, we're always kind of filling in the blanks of, of everything, really, of what we're not told and what we're told, but isn't you know is is veiling something. So basically, in a hundred years' time, if everyone agrees that you're wrong, then you're a wrong. <laughs> 
<laughs> now, Kate, you grew up in. You were born in the Midlands, is that right? Yeah. What um, What was childhood like? What was school like? Have you always been quite academic? Has, was school always an enjoyable place to be? Um, well, um, I'm, I, I wouldn't. I, don't, I wouldn't say I was one of, one of life's academic all-rounders. I wouldn't say I was particularly fantastic at some subjects. Indeed, I indeed I have to say my my biggest. Well, you know, sometimes it's interesting what you get criticised for. Sometimes you know, you know, the comments. I think, as you know, as a commentator, you say quite. You know, it's often the least what you feel is the least controversial things you get criticised for. I was once doing a paper review on the Sky News, and there was a figure that the government had put out about education. I, I didn't think it was right, so I just kind of well, I said, and I said, look, I don't. I'm not the greatest mathematician, but I don't. But, but when I'm quickly looking at this figure of uh, it was the children in schools. I don't think this is correct. It doesn't reflect what I think is the actual statistic. And I, I got this lot of criticism. Someone saying, "Oh well, how can you say that? You know, how can you say you're not a mathematician? You're just discouraging people from maths. And how can you say that? You know, you're, you're really putting people off maths. You're watching." And I was just like, "Well, I just was wanting to hedge my bets in yeah. case like, it actually yeah. was a right statistic." And everyone was like, "No, no, no, you got it wrong." Because um, so I wouldn't. So I wouldn't say I was the greatest or, uh, you know, at all around uh, academics, but I loved um, words so much and I loved history so much and I loved literature and so much and I loved, um, I loved, I loved anything to do with words uh, a great amount. That's what I really did. Um, and, you know, I wrote from a very young age all kinds of stories and all kinds of books and, and somehow I'm not it, it was, I, 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 I'm kind of a hoarder so I end up with, so perhaps if I you know, curated my stuff. I wouldn't be able to keep more stuff, but I have managed to keep my first novel that I ever wrote when I was seven, and my handwriting was much better. Than, wow. yeah. Seven? Oh, you were seven when oh, you wrote a seven. novel? I mean, it's short. It's short, but it, frankly, I'm going to say this, Charles, I think it's the best thing ever written because it, <laughs> the handwriting is the best ever written in The Adventures of Maria. It's about a little girl who's at home, and then an albatross knocks on her window and takes her on these adventures. So, uh, and and she almost she hasn't argued. So it's so actually it's got everything. It's got a story, narrative arc. It's got the all is lost moment when you know that you know that's so vital for films and fiction that the character feels like he's lost everything, and then there's only one way out. You know, kind of at the end of that too. So the, that just comes when when she breaks friends with her albatross, and he he she, she he, he they they split up, and and she's on her own on an island. So they've got the all is lost moment, which I'm. Drew, I'm not like a drawer, but I like drew her crying. And there's a full story arc, and and uh, the handwriting is better than I've ever, ever produced in my whole life. And uh, so uh, the, the Adventures of Maria, I think, is the best thing ever written. So it's been downhill all the way from then because. Um, <laughs> but, the, but, but I've still, I do still have it, and because so many things after that, I think as a writer, you, it's all. I don't think this is the case that. When, when what is said is to be one's debut, it's not one's debut. One's got lots and lots of unfinished books yeah. and books that don't work. And I read a bit, I, I'm you know, such a big fan of the author, Alice Munro, and she said that as a, you know, when she was younger, she just binned things that weren't working and she just left them. And now she's more economical and she goes back to them and she reworks them. So perhaps I've got, I think, five novels that I didn't quite, quite think that worked until I hit on the one that did. And maybe one day I'll go back to them all and reincarnate them. Um, maybe I will. But, yeah. I want to see the story well, of Maria. I would love to hear that because, that, that, okay, my daughter, my 11-month-old daughter, is called Maria. 
Oh my goodness. Well, just what, don't let any albatrosses knock at our window. <laughs> I'll try. I'll try. I've got double glazing, so I think we'll probably be okay. I would love to hear that story. That'd be, oh, oh, that'd be amazing. Thank you. Well, I, Yes, uh, and uh, but but I but I, I love the I love the imaginative freedom that you have as a child. Um, the the imagine the the, the um, I, I know obviously childhood is a time in which you know you're under the control of so many. But and mm. there was a really interesting tweet I saw that had people who read a lot as children. They think they don't always read quite so much now because you know it was such a freedom and such an escape when you were a child. And I think that that, that childhood is such a fascinating time because you're at once you know completely under the control of adults you know you have no freedom at all and yet you and yet you do have in your mind I think often this greater freedom than you do so and as an adult you have personal freedom you know I can eat sweets all night if I want and watch tv all night and all the things you know you're not allowed to do as a child but yet I wonder but yet you're your your thinking, I think, I don't know. It, it can be perhaps less free. So, so I think the imagination uh, of childhood was to me the, the 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 moment of childhood was to me. I think very. I I think it was it was I I think I found it, it was incredibly valuable. I think that um you know I think you know I so I grew up in the Midlands and um and and there was a lot of, lot of time. There's a lot, there was a lot of time. You know after school there's a lot of time and um you know there wasn't. It, I didn't mean to sound as if I'm like twenty, you know, twenty thousand years old, but there wasn't so many TV, there wasn't so much TV to watch or entertainment and things, and there yeah. wasn't so many activities. Mm-hmm. You know. There was only four was, channels. Yeah, 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 there was, you know, there was brownies and that was it. So, so there was a lot of, I think. Yeah. And I think it's wonderful now that children have so much activities they can do and so many things they can do and so many TV programs they can watch and you know the, the, the book they can just get books, so many books and get online books. I think it's fantastic, but but it was you know, slightly different, and I think that. Um, you know, I, I think that I, as I did, did, my mind did have a lot of free time. Hmm. There's something for being bored, yeah. I think. Yeah. There's something... I think when I, mean, I say this to my kids the time because they're just constantly wanting to do something, and I say, do you know what? Actually, it's quite good yeah. to sit in that mindset of being bored because like the other day I was queuing up in the post office saying, I just got my phone out and I was like, cause I, I was bored of queuing and actually I, I caught myself doing it. And I put my phone away cause I thought actually what would be more interesting is to look around and see, like take in what was going on a bit more. And actually it was far yeah. better for my mind than just going on Twitter for like two it's minutes. Isn't it? just it's fascinating. It's fascinating how we, some time. You know, we used to look out, you know, there was a whole thing about looking out of the window on trains and we don't really do it now. And, it, you know, sometimes I, I know, I and mean, sometimes, you, you know, you feel so incredibly liberated when your phone loses all charge and you have no, nothing to do. You have no, obviously not so much train traveling at the moment, but you, but you, you have to sort of look out of the window and, um, and yes, I, I think you know, you know that you can think that you can think. Oh, I'm I'm doing something by, as you say, looking at there's something in the in the queue. But it, but it, 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 it's they're not always the same. I think is it? It, it, it? I think it's really it's a it's a how it's a really interesting change of our sort of cognitive minds. Giles, we have uh, something exciting to announce here in the middle of the podcast, um, and that is that we are launching. Blank merchandise. It's official. No way. Proper, <laughs> proper merchandise. Proper merchandise. So if our listeners would like to buy blank merchandise, they can go to podcastmerch.co.uk forward slash blank and you can get, well, you can get a range of things, can't you? You can get t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, 
What else? Baby grows? Baby grows, because I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of babies out there that love the Blank Podcast. Um, I know mine does. Um, and you can also get, the, we've got various um, designs, haven't we? We've got one that's got our Blank logo on, uh, and then mm-hmm. we've got two that are inspired by pod guests. Yeah, one of them was inspired by Rebecca Callard, who was on, I think, the eighth episode of the Blank Pod, mm. and hers was to do with her video collection, which we were talked about at some length, and we thought that what video library, which was the video shop I worked in back in the 90s, was an excellent name for a romantic <laughs> band of the 1980s. <laughs> yeah, and then you made this uh, this great, uh, what looks like album cover of you and me with um, hair from Flock of Seagulls. Um, so we mm-hmm. thought, you know what, let's make that into a design, so you can get that on t-shirts and hoodies and, and sweatshirts. And then we've got one that's inspired by Sanjeev Bhaskar when he talked about the three different stages of blank, fearful blank, neutral blank, and happy blank. And we've turned that into a design as well. So um, we've got various uh, designs that people can can get um, and in different colours as well. I'm, I'm very excited by this, Charles. I'm really excited. It feels like we're a proper thing now. It does indeed. Um, so if our listeners would, would like to buy some merch... Um, the t-shirts, for example, are 18 quid. Um, the hoodies are 27 quid. Uh, the tote bags are 17 <sighs> quid. And mugs are 15 quid. And, of course, we do get a small cut as well of, of everything that's sold. So if you'd like to support the pod, um, then you can do it in this way. And you'll get yourself some exclusive blank merchandise. So go to podcastmerch.co.uk forward slash blank. Yeah, as you were talking about being creative as as a kid, do you think that create, creative people? I think I think we all are to an extent, anyway. But do you think it, it, growing up, it is those distractions? It's the distractions of life and work and all the other things that come with being an adult that dent our creativity in a way that probably still is in there inside us. I think I, I think what you have as a child is um, I think I think. I think it's a, you have a kind of desperate, and I think also I think also you have a desperate yearning for freedom. I think you desperately want yeah. to, be, although you don't really want to be an adult, you kind of want to be free, and yeah. and and that was something I think I felt quite urgently, um, and that I think creates great imaginative freedom because you have all that potential. You, you know, anything could happen in the future, and and yet obviously and as an adult you're so armed you know many distractions and responsibilities and 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 i think life is very as life is very life is very different um and i think as a child you could imagine that anything could happen you go and live in different places or do different jobs and now as an adult you know your future is more perhaps to a degree more circumscribed and obviously you know i recognize you know what privilege i had as a child you know I was white in a middle-class family and you know I never had to worry where the next meal was coming from you know like you know my family never had, we had, we had the money for food and money for all kinds mm-hmm. of things and we had a house with a garden so I, you know I accept that that gave me a great freedom because I never had to live in fear of, of anything and never had to live in uh, you know panic about where my next meal was coming from or, or being evicted so I accept that that gave you know I understand that that gave me a huge amount of freedom as well um and I, uh, and I think that uh, as an adult, you know, you know I think I think it, you know. On one hand, you do feel, on one hand, you do feel as if you have the kind of great ability to sustain, uh, you know, creative efforts. But on the other hand, 
there are so many distractions. Like I do, you know, you read about how Einstein had seven outfits to 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 rotate, so he never had to worry about what to wear. Really? And, and uh, you know, what would Einstein have done with with Twitter? I don't know because you know he'd have had to be tweeting something. Um, would he be? Would Marie Curie have been tweeting about her latest colonium yeah. discoveries? You know, keeping us all up to date because that would have been great work, but also would it have been a distraction for her yeah. answering you know questions about what exactly was polonium or not? So, so. I, I, I think it's a really fascinating question, the interplay between our increasingly, you know, our, our increasingly dis, dissipated, you might say, life. I mean, obviously, it's been very different in the lockdown. It has been very different. You know, we, we haven't, we, you know, life before, I would, it's, life before was one of, you know, increasingly urban living and increasingly, and, and, and social media and lots of channels and lots of distractions and lots of choice. And there is this argument, isn't it, that the more choice we have, the more difficult we find it. I think there was a certain, you know, psychological thing where they give you if they give you three chocolates you, and you choose one you're not you're happy with your decision but if you get if you give them 30 and you choose one you're just like oh, i'm having the other yeah. one so that was what life was like so the kind of interplay i think with the increasing distraction and i don't see it you know and, and it seems to be increasing increasing and and creativity at one hand at one point i think they seem to feed each other and we do have you know some of the some of the greatest works of art literature poetry music being created on the, and, uh, uh, these they kind of feed into each other and on the other hand they 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 don't and they, yeah so so I think that I think that it is a it is a time of I think there, there is there is both great strength in distraction great strength in what it does to creativity and also it can be completely undermining as well and I think obviously you know what we're what the, the the thing is now that so much of us are who mean to be creative are just watching the political car crashes across the UK and the US in, in yeah. sort of horror and to try and sometimes to try and focus on creative work is, is difficult in that respect isn't it? I watched a very interesting there's a very interesting tweet by John Legend saying you know if you just want to make box that's fine because we all need box and you know and I think that's true you know we all need music yeah. and we all need but it's hard to sometimes remember when you're watching when you're when we're approaching the American elections and we've got you know, forty thousand dead of this in this country, dead of dead of COVID, and it's it's coming back. So it's, it's I think so. I think to it's it's, it's difficult. I, it's, it's a kind of you know the, the, that perhaps is the great. It's not a distraction, but that quite is that perhaps is the greatest weight on your mind in terms of creativity now that you're in this world uh, that's scary. That's that's scaring in a terrifying way. Yeah. Did did have those things affected your process during this time as well? Um, you know, it's hard not to. It's hard not to become so fascinated. But it's hard not to. Mm. You know, it's hard not to want to witness it. I think it's hard not yeah. to want to witness it and and hope that by witnessing it and by not that things will change. Because I think that's the dream of the democracy, isn't it? If we don't witness it, then we will we'll get we'll end up in a in a in the autocracy. But but yes, you can feel like you're always witnessing and nothing is going to change. It's true. I've, I do find it. I do yeah, find absolutely. a lot of it, sort of the political discourse and stuff at the moment, quite draining, quite tiring. And I find to be creative, I need to be not as tired, I guess, or I need to be in a more for sort of a fresh state. And emotionally, a lot of this stuff that you're talking about really is quite draining and quite tiring. And if you switch on the news and watch the you know news at ten for half an hour, I feel a bit weighty afterwards like I feel a bit drained and then it's very difficult to then do any anything creative but as you say you still want to be a witness to it because as you said earlier in the call feel like we're living through incredibly important times that people will look back on in 20 30 40 years 
as seminal moments in our history. So it's it's a weird juxtaposition of trying to be creative, but also trying to witness and recognise what's happening. And I, I personally find that a real struggle, and that's why my creativity has been really inconsistent through this time. Sometimes I feel really on it, and sometimes I just feel a bit like I need a breather from everything. So that and having an open with our baby as well. I agree, isn't it? And you know, you can, you know, you know and, and, and sometimes you get caught, caught up in a you know, huge political moment, and yet nothing changes. And you, so for example, you know, the huge scandal in Barney Castle and Dominic Cummings, you know, we're all talking about it, and, all, and, and yet, what was the point? You know, we, still, he's got as much power as he always had. So yeah. it, it's almost as if we might as well yeah. <laughs> just ignore it. But it, but it's um, but I, but I love news as well. I really enjoy keep breaking news and keeping up with it. And, and obviously, sometimes I work within it when there's been a royal or constitutional question. And you know, on top of that, you know, there's been a lot of royal news uh, this year with Harry and Meghan and um, the constant uh, criticism, the misogyny, the racism against the Duchess of Sussex that just it doesn't see doesn't show any sign of abating. It's just you know whatever she does. You know we had a, recently she made the mild intervention that people might like to vote in the American election, and there was you know this outcry that she was politically meddling. When yeah, you know, every lots of royals have talked about elections. Of course, lots of royals. I mean, we've had royals actually writing, such as Prince Charles writing to the to politicians. Um, and Meghan herself has talked about the importance of voting when uh, when she was part of when she was on a royal family trip um, in New Zealand, and yet she does she simply says it's didn't say who to vote for. She simply said it's important to vote. And the Queen said that. So the, and not, not only the fact that, you know, she's they've stepped back from the royal family, but also she's American. So she's not, it's not, it's not, <laughs> she yeah. is an American citizen. Uh, and and this was, you know, so there's nothing. And then they have this, this big Netflix deal, which sounds fantastic, but also this avalanche of, oh, no, you know, what if they don't do anything? What if they undermine the Queen when, you know, they're making children's programmes and programmes about inspirational women? So I can't see, you know, it's just going to be marvellous stuff. So, you know, the, obviously the misogyny, I think, I think, yeah, even even after they step back from the royal family, so it continues that yeah, the Frogmore is an energy brought up when you know Meghan and Harry lived in this house that was maybe twenty the size of most royal houses. All royal houses are most most royals get a crown property on marriage, huge, absolutely huge, and it's renovated with millions, millions, and no one ever said anything. And suddenly, with Meghan and Harry getting a comparatively small property in Frogmore, it's been renovated anyway because it was a bit of a bad state, and it's like. It's some kind of national crisis and meltdown. So, so um, uh, you know, I think I think that's also very indicative about society. society that the you know we saw women 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 we saw Princess Diana chased down uh, as was said. You know, the yeah. woman who's named after the huntress became the most hunted woman of the modern age, and then it happens all again all over again to her daughter-in-law, and we've just learned. Nothing, nothing tormenting women in the royal family to death and with with Megan it's, it's so much worse because of the added racism and the race hate that gets directed towards her I totally agree yeah it's been it's been horrible to watch that um you know and and when there's another member of the royal family who's had much more um lurid and um quite frankly kind of dodgy friendships with um you know with sex offenders and sex traffickers i think which gets hardly you know it has had some news coverage but obviously not in the same well, way uh, you're exactly uh, right i mean that's exactly the case isn't it that megan wearing black nail varnish or well, I mean, like the dark nail varnish seems to be some kind of crisis or one shoulder yeah. dress or eating avocados and these things were yeah. huge crises and blown up and it was undermining the royal family and there you have a situation in which 
in which Andrew is consorting with the convicted paedophile. And we we knew that definitely to be the case, even after he'd been convicted, even after after there was no no, um, ambiguity that he'd been convicted. And then then also uh, with the November interview with Newsnight, and we make this, there was no sympathy expressed for the victims. And, and, you know, when he was asked, did you see traffic women in Epstein's houses? He said, well, I'm used to staff and people coming and going. And as if there's a comparison between Buckingham Palace footmen and, and, and civil servants and traffic teenagers. So, and so yeah. the that we have a, a situation, in, and obviously he stepped back from the royal family too. He's not doing royal engagements, and yet no one's asking him to repay his uh, the money on, on his properties. He 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 was given a royal property, was renovated, a thing there and sold it, fifteen million. So we, you know, we, we we just we have this situation in which. There are some people in our society who seem to care much more about Meghan's choice of nail varnish than the fact that Prince Andrew was engaging in these in friendship with a convicted paedophile and is accused of by by, by traffic women, including Virginia Roberts, of have of actually sexual assault on them as well. So the you know, you know the, 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 it's this is a stark the you know start the idea that Meghan and Harry have undermined the royal family or, or compromised the royal family when that's what Prince Andrew is doing. I mean, this is this is, you know, this is I think this is a this will be something that future historians will find very indicative. I agree, and I think there'll be a lot of people that will end up on the wrong side of history during this period. And and as you sort of alluded to earlier with Princess Diana, it does feel sometimes like we have learnt absolutely nothing from history. Uh, when there's incredible parallels between the way they treat Meghan and they printed, treated Princess Diana. And it's just, it's really, really frustrating. You like to think that as a society we get more progressive and we get more knowledgeable, more savvy, and we grow up a bit. And in 20 years, whatever it is, 30 years, we've learned nothing. I mean, it's really depressing. I think I think everyone watched Diana's funeral and said that will never happen, never happen again. And yet, then it did. Yeah. All over again. It always kind of texts were exactly the same. And... Obviously, lots of people say, oh, you know, everyone was nice to Diana, and, and they weren't. You know, there were all these mean things said about her, and misogynist slurs, I mean, and misogynist slurs, there were horrible things said about her, um, you know, that they said, oh, she wasn't educated, and, you know, and, and very sexist, terrible misogyny about her. And, that you know, the, the, the avalanche of love came after she had a tragic death at the age of 36, and that... But but we I think we all watch a funeral. We thought that's not going to happen again, you know. It, 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 and yet we 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 sort of we sort of hunt women in the public eye. Both were women, uh, and Meghan has been you know a sort of rather terrifying example that even when she's trying to stop drones going into her backyard to film her baby, uh, that is you know seen as seen as horrific horrific act. But also you know we've seen so many women you know chased down in the public eye, and you know from Amy Winehouse to Caroline Flack earlier this year, mm. uh, uh, you know the lessons of Princess Diana that, that these are real people and they're not dolls for us to stick pins in and torment just for fun. Uh, I think we, I, I think we haven't haven't learned it, and 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 that. The, I, I think it is it is a game for so many, and 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 I think Caroline Flack's death again. That was another one where I think people thought that might be a, a moment, a cataclysmic moment in which we the be kind would be true. But I don't think it's. I think it's. I think it was a brief moment, and now it's reverted. Yeah, and I think if anything, the right wing press has probably doubled down. Um, 
if anything, you know, which they did, they've done, they've done for many years. We've seen it, you know, we've seen it with the, the hacking yeah. scandal and everything. I mean, they don't seem to have learned any lessons, as we said before, about history and things that have gone before. There doesn't seem to be any change in their remit. I, I, I mean, I think that it's, you know, that women are, women in the public eye, particularly black women, are kind of easy, easy clicks, I think, to, to, to trade on. And obviously, you know, there's, you know, I, 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 I thought I get, you know, in the midst of pandemic, in the midst of Brexit, in the midst of everything that's going on, that, that the focus should be on what Meghan and Harry are doing or the folk that just, it's, it's, I, I, is it, you just think, you know, we, we should be, the, 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 why are we, why are we, when we were battling towards no deal Brexit, when we've got, yeah, you know, we've got thousands dead from COVID and yet they what's the scandal? It's that Megan doesn't want people in her garden, in her garden with drones taking photos of her baby. And this is just sort of madness, really. Yeah. It's frustrating. And I was about to ask sort of, where do we go from here? You know, and can we learn anything from history as to how we improve from this situation? But um, I don't even, I don't know. I don't know. I'm feeling quite despondent about it, if I'm totally honest. So I don't really oh, no. know where we I go. I think, I, think there's, I think there's a lot we can learn from history. I think there's a lot. But it, it involves kind of, I think, an honest acknowledgement and of, of, what we, of what we as a country have done. And I think rather than, what, rather than sort of, it involves engaging with the historical reality rather than the historical myth, I think. And that's not easy. No. No. Um, you, 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 like you say, you come on TV quite a lot to talk about constitutional stuff. What, when did you become fascinated with, with royalty and, 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 and royal um, history? Well, I, I wrote, I think, well, I started doing some research on royal history um, when I was a student, and then I wrote a book on Victoria and then Elizabeth II, and I contributed a book on royal weddings. And my most recent book is on Mary Queen of Scots, um, who really fascinates me because, you know, she mm. she she had every, she had everything that you would think you'd need for power. She had super royal blood, much more royal blood than anyone else. She had French royal blood, Scottish royal blood, English royal blood from Henry VIII, and and you know huge amounts of support and, and beauty and a male heir. You know all these things that you you think that <laughs> there's like kind of magic. Mm. Collection of things you need for a monarch, but still, you know, her her reign ended in a collapse, uh, and her power was taken from her. And really, you know, it's a fascinating question. Mary Queen of Scots next to Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First is seen as one of the most powerful monarchs, but Mary Queen of Scots is seen as often seen as a failure. But when you look at her in terms of queenship, she does the same things that Elizabeth the First does. Listens to her ministers, talks about religious toleration, uh, but. Elizabeth I is in a situation in which men are trying to undermine her, but what they'll do is they, you know, they'll, they'll use sexist words about, oh, she's you know, changing her mind or prevaricating, or they won't invite her to meetings, or they won't tell her things. But Mary Queen of Scots, they try and kidnap her, they try and seize her, uh, they try and assault her. So you know, no one would do that to Elizabeth I. It would be seen, you know, one of the elites. I mean, that would be seen as outrageous, but you, you have it. So the, the, the ways of countering female power are so much more aggressive in Mary Queen of Scots terms and in Mary Queen of Scots world and there's just no way that she can fight back so by the age of you know she's come to comes back to Britain at 18 and 18 and at the age of 25 she is you know she's 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 been thrown off her throne and 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 she flees into Britain and then is kept under house arrest for the rest of her life so I think you know she's 
uh, it's a fascinating question about women and power and how much power are women allowed to have and how much are they allowed to I think very much her half brother wanted to rule and use her as his puppet queen but she wanted to rule for herself as Elizabeth I did she had the blood and she felt very strongly it was it was the right of queens the right of monarchs and yet you know, she everything was taken from her. I think if she had perhaps had agreed to be a puppet monarch for her brother, she might have survived longer. But she made a stab at ruling for herself. So that that was so. This to answer your question, uh, monarchy that was it's been a long term mm. interest of mine. I find it very fascinating the questions of power and the question of constitution and how power and constitution works. And obviously, um, it's not just this country which has been seen a very interesting monarchy question. I mean, to think in Spain. You've got the King of Spain, who once upon a time was seen as the great hero for reversing Franco's regime, for Franco thought that he just continued the Franco regime at Juan Carlos, and Juan Carlos didn't. He instituted democratic reforms and was seen as this great hero and fought back against the 1981 Franco as coup, so he's seen as this great hero king, and huge popularity ratings. And then you have now he's had to leave Spain with two suitcases to be off in utter disgrace in, in Dubai. And no one, no one knew where he was. He had to flee really in the middle of the night. So how your fortunes as a monarch change. That's interesting. Does that power shift always at some point ultimately end in disaster then? Does it, do, do the people turn against them, historically turn against their monarchs then? Is that something that happens a lot? I think Juan Carlos did, did bring it upon himself to a large degree. I mean, obviously the corruption, the corruption scandals. Um, you know, the, 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 I think there was a there was, there was this elephant hunting trip in 2012 when he went elephant hunting secretly, and it was paid for by a foreign businessman. It was seen as a shocking scandal. And then I think finally the scandal in which there was seems to be kickbacks going on. Uh, so that um, there seems to be there had there was nothing for him to do but abdicate, and I think now nothing for him to do to flee. Because of course, as soon as you abdicate, you're no longer protected in the same way by diplomatic immunity. You can be arrested. Yeah. So I think I think I think sometimes we do move against our monarchs, particularly at the end of their their, their reign. But I think uh, that does happen naturally. I think we start to look at the next generation, and it does does happen even no matter how. And I think it happens, you know, in all human life, doesn't it? You know, you often feel that no matter. You know how how much you might have given to your company or your job. Suddenly, actually, you're you're sort of dispensable. And but I think you know it, they, it was more than this with Juan Carlos. I think he definitely brought some of it himself. <laughs> yeah. But um, but I do think that monarchy and power and constitution and how it intersects with government is is a very fascinating area. Well, I think actually, as you're talking, I'm trying to relay it into terms that are more sort of in my wheelhouse, and that's football managers. And I think football managers feel the same way. They have a lot of power at the start, and then by the end, the fans have normally turned on them, even if they've been quite successful, and most are normally sacked before they walk or get another job. So just trying to put it in my wheelhouse. Yeah. But um, similar sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, you last for so long. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and, you know, power... <laughs> Yeah, that, that that sort of conflict and shift of power, I think, is, is very interesting. And I think you're right. It is, it's not just monarchy. It's in all walks of life. And I think that can probably be applied to lots of different people in different industries. Exactly. I agree. Mm. Well, how do you see, where do you see this current royal family, the, the UK royal family, being in, say, I don't know, 20, 30 years well, time? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. I and mean, I think it really depends on where Britain is in 20, 30 years time. I mean, you know, we are possibly, there may be another, you know, we are on the brink of great change. Um, Brexit, uh, possible another Scottish referendum, uh, possibly questions about uh, um, Northern Ireland. And so so it may be that, and, and, and I think uh, the Commonwealth 
we have seen talk in the Commonwealth about uh, breaking away from the Commonwealth in quite a few countries, and they've said, a lot of them have said that they feel that it's not a question they're going to discuss while the Queen is still alive, but when she is no longer with us, it may be a question that they'll engage with. So it, it may be in the future that the, 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 the realm of the royal family will be much changed. And that, I think, will, will have a great impact on what the way in which we see them and the way in which we engage with them um, in terms of if, if they are, um, because they are you know, historically seen as one with quite a big geographic reach. Uh, but that, that I, think, yeah. I think it is going to change. I think the Commonwealth is changing. That'll be very interesting when when that happens. That'll that'll be for someone that's grown up for all of us really. That's grown up with the monarchy and Queen Elizabeth, which had a very very long reign. That will be a fascinating time, I think, when that when that changes. But and obviously, you know, in your tw- next, you know, in twenty twenty two, we have the um, platinum jubilee of the Queen, and it was always, it was so fascinating, wasn't it? In twenty twelve, you know, we had the diamond jubilee. It was you know lots mm. of ice, little. Um, we're all out partying. I said to some people, "Why are you out? You know, enjoying the you know, the street party." And they said, "Oh well, I think this is a strike moment. We'll never see it again." And I didn't think, "I wonder. I wonder." <laughs> <laughs> so I'll see another. Um, we, we will see another. You know, it's just a few years ahead of us. You know, and I, and I know there are plans being made, and obviously, you know, we hope by then that COVID will be under control, so crowds can gather again. Um, and uh, I mean, mm. you know, and, and, and hopefully long before that, hopefully next year, hopefully by next year, COVID will be completely under control and theatres can open and heritage oh, sites yeah. can open because things, you know, it's been terrible, terrible for theatre and heritage. Um, so so I think that, um, you, know, the, the, you know, what, what, what we've also had to move to is a recognition that of the older monarchy, I mean, that that monarchy is really that obviously Prince Charles will come to the throne quite old and Prince William may come to the throne, you know, maybe in his 50s. And that same may be the same for Prince George. Uh, The the days in which obviously with the Queen, we had a young Queen, Victoria had a young Queen. I'm afraid it's it's a truism of monarchy that the younger you come to the throne, the more popular you are. That that is, I'm afraid to say it's the case. Interesting. uh, With the exception of children. But if you come to the throne, the ideal age to come to the throne is about 18 to 25. so most of our most popular monarchs have come to the throne at the age of 18 or between 18 to 25. There's Victoria, there's Elizabeth I, um, Queen herself, um, and Henry VIII, uh, and um, you know George III as well. So some of the ones we see as most celebrated uh, have come to the throne quite young. And uh, obviously it gives you the longevity yeah. of a long reign. But also I think people mm-hmm. are always very excited about a young monarch coming to the throne. It seems like a kind of rebirth in that sense. So... So, um, and because we don't have a tradition here of um, abdication in the way that, um, you know, in countries like the Netherlands, it's like you retire, you abdicate, the queen retires and puts her feet up and does crossword puzzles and hands, uh, as, she, as she deserves, and hands the reins over to her, you know, to, to the next one down. We just don't have that in this country. That's not how things work. You know, Edward VIII's abdication was a scandal. Yeah. So um, I think that, you know, that, that it, you know, we all, we, we get the vision that the, the monarchy may change in terms of the territory and it may change in terms of what happens to the to, to, to the monarchy and it may change. We, I mean, it may be that, you know, an idea of abdication is brought in and it, or it may be that uh, different questions of the constitution are brought in. And I think that, you know, it may be that, that people might be more, 
um, more scrutiny of what the royals spend. This is thing. This is all things that may happen in the future. That's fascinating, and and, and you're talking about the Queen's longevity. I've always said, again, to bring it back to football, very much my wheelhouse, that she is the Sir Alex Ferguson of royals. Really, when you think about that longevity, and let's just hope that when she does eventually leave, that we don't have a Man United situation in terms of the next few managers. Although Prince Charles kind of is the David Moyes of the royal family, if we're thinking about it. But um, it will be. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to keep up with all the. Yeah, I'm trying to keep up. Yeah, I'm not. That's for you know, I always. Um, yeah, I know. I do a few. You know, I do a few quizzes on TV, and I always get a bit nervous with the football questions. <laughs> I always don't want to get a bit nervous on. You know, I'm. I'm all there with the history and the literature, um, and um, you know, things like food and drink. I can do better on than you might think. And I. And I did. Um, I did do a quiz once, and they played one note of the song, and I knew it was Calm the Chameleon. So I, I, thought, I thought that was a particularly. Yeah, but but football, I am um, you know, eighties and nineties music, but football oh, wow. question. I, I, it's, I <laughs> Maybe struggle, we should so. form a quiz team then, because football is all I've got and all I can do. Okay, so we'll do it. I'll do quiz. Yeah, we'll do it. You yeah. guys, do, I'll do football. You guys do everything else. Yeah, I'm on for that. I'm not sure what I'm bringing to the party. Just the snacks, the snacks. <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm bringing. Yeah, I'll just yeah, I'll, I'll provide snacks. Women's gymnastics. I'm on for that one, but football. I I I've got to say, we got all the bases yeah. covered. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> Any pub quiz, we are ready. But you know, my, you know, one of my best quiz questions for a quiz. Um, uh, what is the nut in the Cadbury's fruit and nut? That's a great question. Okay, let me let me guess. I, I would say. Come on, guys. You know you do it. You know you do it. I'm thinking. I haven't had one for a while. I'm thinking Ma- about. Yeah, I may have gone macadamia. macadamia. No. Is it is it That's Brazil nuts? Something like that. What's your final answer? I'm going. I'll go Brazil. I'm going to go macadamia. It's now. I'm afraid you're wrong. <laughs> the 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 nut in the fruit and nut is an almond. Oh. And you often bring us a hazelnut because they get it muddled with a whole nut. But yeah, but they, they I guess they leave the, the sort of yeah, I wouldn't skin have gone on the almond. Yeah, it's got the brown have... kind of hard. So it looks like a macadamia. It looks like one. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I went sense. macadamia, see. <laughs> I should have followed my gut because I was thinking almond as well. I was, I was picturing almond. This is my tip, you know, in the quizzes, you know, follow your instincts. Follow your instincts. I mean, I don't have so many things wrong. I almost, I'll mastermind. I almost lost, I got, they are, I almost lost mastermind because I just got completely derailed by the question, where is Fort Knox? I was just like, oh, Texas. Is it Texas? I didn't get it right, but, I, but then I got confused. Luckily, one on Oscar Wilde got me back on track. I, <laughs> it is, te- is, on is it out, Texas? It is Texas. Like, oh. Okay. I, I remember you being on that, but I can't remember what your specialist subject was. My specialist subject was Emily Bronte, because you are not allowed to... I, you know, when they said to me, what's your specialist subject? I was like, well, I know. It's my well, book. Hey. What's one of my books? It's <laughs> Emma Hamilton. It's, and they were like, and they, why is it so that you couldn't do it, Mastermind, on one of yours, you know, one of the things you've written a book about? Because I think what, on, you your couldn't do your special subject, subject on your special subject. I think it's subject. fair enough. I think it's you know fair enough. I mean, you know, I mean, I think it, it, so. It wouldn't so. I, so, and, but the, and, I, and I said, oh well, um, I, I know I do it. I do an uh, an or because lots of the other historical subjects I wanted to do had been done. You know, they'd all, already been seen. Yeah. So um, it was quite difficult actually. And Jane Austen had gone, and I think Dickens had gone, and Charlotte Bronte had gone, and finally I've, I've, stuck, I've got Emily Bronte, and she had not gone. So I was very glad because I was struggling for a subject because I realised I thought, gosh, I'm in the mainstream here because a lot of my subjects were very very popular. And I, I guess I could have done, you know, cult, the culture, you know, spotted off on something really really obscure. I could have, really obscure. I don't know, like, obviously my karma community knowledge, you know, culture club and 
talk to, uh, and yeah. that's, that's not even, actually I say that it's obscure, it, would have been, it wasn't, it's not at all obscure, but someone had already done Culture Club, and, and <sighs> so that would have gone as well, so I would have had, I'd, so I did, I did Emily, Emily Bronte, um, and, uh, but I did almost get derailed by the, by the Fort Knox question, so I just, it was. Yeah. I was thinking they must be running out of specialist, specialist questions. They must be. I was thinking they must be running out of specialist questions. Like with all the, the amount of shows they've done, there's probably quite a lot of subjects that have, have well, gone. Well, I think that you know, I don't know whether anyone's done the blank pod. <laughs> very, very true. Well. I'd be surprised. <laughs> it's there. It's there for people to. <laughs> That's have. our it's tip. Fine. Any, anyone who's looking for a subject, because Harry Potter probably has been done, yeah. and you know. Uh, yeah, that or Cadbury's chocolate but, bars. Yeah, I think that's a good one. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah Cadbury's chocolate well, I did, bars. I did, would be a good I, did get, yeah. um, I did win pointless on on chocolate. Oh. That, that was my category. Did you? Yes, amazing. The most obscure chocolate making countries in in the world, uh, and I can't remember what was it, what there was some pointless on. So I can't remember <laughs> what it was actually, but I I, I can't remember. But uh, what did I? Whoa. Wonder, yeah, no, I can't, I can't remember, remember what I said, but I think I did win the... a prize. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I don't think it was a shame that, that, that one of them was Cuba, because I actually had been uh, about a couple of months before to Cuba and gone to the chocolate museum in Cuba, and the fact that I seem to have completely forgotten <laughs> uh, wasn't that the actual museum I'd been to in Cuba really suggests that, you know, what is the point in me going to any museum on holiday? I've been the whole time. I've done the research, I did not remember. I didn't know Cuba was known for its chocolate. It's a complete blank. I completely blank. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, Kate, it's been an absolute been pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so oh, much. It's been honestly, it has been really fascinating talking about all sorts of things. And yeah, we've touched on yeah. so many different subjects as well. It's been, um, yeah, it's thank been fantastic. And so I, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thank you. There we go. That was a fantastic podcast. Really enjoyable uh, episode. Mm. Fascinating. And I think any episode where I get to call the Queen the Alex Ferguson of the monarchy, you know it's going to be a good episode. <laughs> there were so many times where you tried to segue in some sort of <laughs> metaphor about football. It was impressive. Yeah, this is, That's my life, Charles. That's what I do every day. Mm. But, uh, but also, I think also sometimes it is good to give stuff context, you know, and there might be people listening who, like me, maybe don't know. They want it in layman's they terms. In layman's terms, but also in, in terms they can relate to. And for me, if I can relate yeah, stuff out to football, I find it actually does help me understand things. I was trying to think what other things we could have related it to that wasn't football. Music. That would be, would be video yeah. games, maybe. What would Queen be in the musical way? Queen. Well... <laughs> Yeah, it's obvious, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it could be. Um, if you could be the Lady Gaga mm. of the music of the of the royal, we're always always um, diversifying. Always, and actually, no, she yeah. doesn't, doesn't do that at all. <laughs> what? You need no. someone who's got maybe more Madonna. About to say long. Well, again, she's always diversified as well, but like long in longevity terms, definitely Madonna. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, thank you very much to uh, Prince Andrew's the Michael Jackson. <laughs> oh God, you've got, you've got to cut that. Actually, they're both. No, oh yeah, I'll cut that. Um, thank you. <laughs> I was about to say they're both dead. He's not dead. 
<laughs> or it could have said Gary Glitter, that would have been much worse. Fucking hell. I've got all that. I can't, I can't okay, thank God can't. you're editing this week because if that was me, I'd probably forget <laughs> to cut that and we would get sued um, by the royal family. <clears throat> thank you very much to. I cut all that uh, bit. <laughs> no, it was good. It's good. If this was a live comedy show, that's gold. But obviously, this is a recorded podcast. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, thank you very much uh, to Kate for joining us because that was a fascinating um, episode and we hope that listeners uh, enjoyed that as much as we did. Shall we? Yeah, Kate's so nice as well. She's such a lovely lady. So, it was really real privilege. It really was and a very easy guest to talk to. Um, Much like all our guests, we're very lucky these people come on and they're so friendly and open and and happy to chat about stuff. And, uh, yeah, we're very lucky. You're a good booker. You're a good booker, Giles. Well, I do try and find the nicest. Well, you around. do. Um, speaking of, we've got so many great tweets. I was going to say, speaking week. of nice people, mm. so many. Let's read out some nice tweets. I've got one here from you. you read yours first, Steve McHugh. Hey, Steve. <laughs> who I've just realised has done a tweet about the Ronnie O'Sullivan pod. So he's the perfect person called Steve McHugh to to uh, tweet about. That's a brilliant. Oh my goodness, that's it's almost like he's that can't be his real name. Sure, I'm going to. Is he just a big snooker fan? Uh, maybe veteran footballer. So maybe I'll play against him at some point. Um, Steve McHugh, what a great name. Anyway, and if he's over thirty, yeah, I assume, well, yeah, if he's well. I wouldn't want to cast aspersions. I'm looking at his Twitter profile picture. He looks very youthful. So, anyway, okay. Steve McHugh, great name, um, has tweeted us, uh, really enjoyed the Blank Pod with Ronnie O'Sullivan on my morning run today, which we know Ronnie would approve of. Um, mm. Amazed by how someone who has been at the top of his profession for years is still looking to learn, improve, and deal with situations better. Hashtag never stop learning. That's absolutely true. Uh, I found yeah, that brilliant. fascinating as well from Ronnie, and I think that's actually one of the part of the secret to his success. Yeah, we, I've got a great one here. I've got, I'm going to read two out if that's okay. But the first one I'm going to read out is Alex Collis. He's put walking back home, switch on blank pod with Ronnie O'Sullivan, look up and almost fall over. And he's sent a picture of a wheelie bin with 147 in it. <laughs> oh my God, amazing. Yeah. So is that good. Steve McHugh's wheelie bin? <laughs> it might be. It might be. Um, so that's fantastic. Thanks, Alex. Um, and then another one I've got here is a lovely tweet from Angie Andrews. And she says, love blank pod with Ronnie O'Sullivan. Such an honest and fascinating chat. Thank you to um, to Giles and Jim. I'm having a very anxious day, and this was such a great escape. So I'm sorry you were having an anxious day, Angie, but I'm so pleased that we were able to be a bit of a distraction for you. And um, you know, hopefully that took your minds off things a little bit and helped you with your anxiety. So that's that's a really lovely message. It's nice to know that we are. We are there for people without knowing we're there. That Absolutely. Sense. Yes. Thank you very much for that tweet, Angie. And um, it's nice when people are sort of honest, you know, honest in these tweets and share these moments with us. And it's nice to know that we can maybe be a little bit of a help with that. And, and the Ronnie pod was just fantastic. You know, what, what a great guy. Yeah, it's been, yeah, we've and it's had lots and lots of people talking about it. And um, we even got some national press. Got a little bit, yeah. Which was very nice. So, yeah, we that's always nice to see and know that people are listening. So, yeah, and uh, Ronnie's fantastic. Fantastic. Absolutely top man. Um, so anyway, if you would like to tweet us uh, about anything you've enjoyed with our episode, you can. Our Twitter handle is... At Blank Pod. Uh, and we're also on Facebook and Instagram. And just to make life easier, the handle is exactly the same. At Blank Pod. Um, <laughs> that was a great delivery. And... Um, email. We, we would love an email if you fancy sending us one. Our email address is... The Blank Podcast 2018 
at gmail.com. So uh, we would love to hear from you on any of those platforms. Um, and that's it for this week. Uh, we're back next week, of course, Charles, with another fantastic guest. Another fantastic guest. I can't wait. Neither can I. And in the meantime, Charles, have a great week. And you, Thank Jim. you very much. Take care. Thank you. Live long and prosper. <laughs> Same to our listeners. And we'll see you again very soon on the Blank Podcast.